So we're in a series called What About 2.0? And you may be wondering, why is it 2.0? If you're just finding us, it's because we did What About at the beginning of the year or, or in the spring, we spent some time. And the, the question What About really gets down to the reality, the lived experience of so many of us who have experienced a faith shift where we've gone from sort of living under a sacred canopy of certainty where everything, we know everything, we have all the answers, it all fits, it all makes sense, to a context where we're not sure about a lot of things anymore. And as we begin pulling those threads and the thing begins to unravel, what we begin to discover is that there are lots of things we have questions about. Um, and so we're exploring those questions in, or some of the questions you've asked in this series about specific topics. And this week, and I know this is why you're all here, this week we're gonna talk about the Satan. Who's pumped? <laughs> Yeah. How many of you, when your faith shifted, you were called a Satanist? Does anybody? Um, um, so, so here's the thing. Uh, what, what comes to mind for you when you hear the word Satan? Is there an image? What is that image? Yeah, I, I joked with somebody earlier this week that I was going to do the sermon today in like a red jumpsuit uh, and a pitchfork and just let it be sort of its own thing. But yeah, it's sort of this cartoonish image of this guy who's may, maybe wearing a red, red jumpsuit leotard sort of combo, got a pitchfork, generally tends to hell, um, and is, is in his free time messing with your life and trying to get you to not listen to God and not listen to Jesus, but to, to do your own thing, right? Um, so what I want to do today, and this is one of those risks we take, uh, sometimes, which is I want to give you a little bit of history. I, I want to sort of trace some of the evolution of this figure that we would call the Satan or Satan, um, and, and just see from the first mention of this word Satan in the Bible to where we end up. How does that happen? And then I hope by the end, we're going to be able to bring some things together that are going to maybe be a couple of light bulb moments for us. So let's begin with this. The first mention of the word Satan in the Bible comes from Numbers 22. Um, anybody familiar with what's in Numbers 22? Yeah, I, I kind of looked it up too. In uh, Numbers 22, um, it's the most intimidating book of the Bible for me because I don't like numbers. And so you name the book of the Bible that, right? It's a little intimidating. Uh, but Numbers 22 is this story about a guy named Balaam who ends up being, having a conversation with his donkey. How many of you remember that story? The, the talking donkey in the Bible. So in that story, there's this detail. Verse 22, so while Balaam was riding on his donkey, accompanied by his two servants, the Lord's messenger stood in the road as his adversary. Now, adversary, we, we know what that means, right? Somebody who's opposed to. But do you know what that word is in Hebrew? It's the word Satan. So the Lord's messenger, and, and often what Hebrew Bible scholars will tell us is that it's possible when you see the Lord's messenger mentioned, that it's really a way of talking about God, but doing so respectfully, right? So not looking directly at the sun during an eclipse, but looking through the little sunglasses things. Um, and what, the first mention of Satan in the Bible isn't talking about a human or a little figure in a red jumpsuit. It's talking about God. God was a Satan to Balaam's donkey which I thought was just the coolest little introduction. Because in the beginning, Satan did not refer to a person or a personality. In the beginning, the word Satan simply meant somebody who was an adversary, 
somebody who opposed, somebody who tried to get in the way of. First mentioned, Satan is a reference to God. Now, very quickly, this person throughout, if you go throughout the canon, this, this Satan becomes personal. And one of the, probably if you're familiar with the Bible, when somebody brings up Satan, the, the number one text that my brain goes to is Job chapter one. Um, anybody else familiar with the book of, the book of Job? Looks like the book of Job um, chapter one. And this is the beginning of the book of Job. So what we find out is when this story begins is that Job is a really, really fortunate guy. Uh, everything's gone right for him. He's got a really big loving family. He's got lots and lots of stuff. Life has been good to Job. And then we don't know this yet, but it's foreshadowed. Everything's, the, the wheels are about to fall off for Job. Everything's going to fall apart. Um, and there's this encounter between God and this figure called the Satan, which we'll get to in a minute, that explains why it all falls apart. It's actually possible that the book of Job existed in like poetry form, and then somebody wrote the beginning and the end and stuck them on there as a way of giving some context to it. Right? That's, that's what scholarship thinks. So here's chapter 1, verse 6. One day, the divine beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and the adversary, which in Hebrew is the Satan. The Satan. Uh, and it, so it, it comes with the, the article. Um, and in Hebrew, so the, the word would not just be Satan in Hebrew. The, the article in Hebrew, like our word the, is H-A, ha. Um, so if you wanted to say the Satan in Hebrew, you're like, ha, Satan, um, <laughs> which is just great. And the, the, the Satan, the adversary, also came among them. The Lord said to the adversary, where did you come from? Now just pay attention to some of the details in this story. Here we have the all-knowing God and what is the first question out of the all-knowing God's mouth? Where have you been? Where have you gone? And the Satan says, from wandering throughout the earth. The Lord said to the adversary, have you thought about my servant Job? Surely there is no one like him on earth, a man who is honest, who is of absolute integrity, who reveres God and avoids evil. Have you seen? It, 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 why? Why do you bring this up? Why do you bring this up? So in this context, the adversary is sort of like not against God, but works for God, is part of God's heavenly court as sort of a prosecuting attorney, right? The adversary is going, and so God's like, hey, have you checked out Job? Look, like, why do you bring Job into this, God? If you think Job's so great, why do you go, you, you don't have anything to do? You got to meet my friend Job. <laughs> you should totally go meet my friend Job. Have you thought about my, ser my servant Job? And the adversary answers the Lord, does Job revere God for nothing? Haven't you fenced him in his house and all he has and blessed the work of his hands so that his possessions extend throughout the earth, but stretch out your hand and strike all he has. He will certainly curse you to your face. The Lord said to the adversary, look, uh, all he has is within your power, only don't stretch out your hand against him. So the adversary left the Lord's presence. So when we meet, the first time we meet the Satan, right, this figure, this person works for God, is like a prosecuting attorney in God's, attorney in God's court. And they're sort of having this back and forth about this guy, Job. And if you haven't read the book of Job, spoiler alert, this, everything, he loses everything. He loses his family, he loses his wealth, he loses it all. And it's a story about what Job does in response to losing it all. Now, here's what I wanna say. I don't think this story literally happened, okay? For those of us who read that and we're sort of like, why in the world would God do that? Yeah, 
Why would God do that? Doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you are one of our spiritual ancestors wrestling with why bad things happen to good people, why sometimes it seems like the best people go through the greatest suffering, you might want to tell a story and write some poetry that begins to give expression to that longing to, to answer that question. If you read the book of Job and you walk away going, that's a little unsatisfying. Yes, because the answer to that question for human beings will always be a little unsatisfying because we actually never get to an answer. All we can get to is, well, maybe it's this, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. And that's what the book of Job is doing. It's entering into a conversation and saying, I don't know why bad things happen to good people, but I want to take a stab at it. And I want to see if maybe we can give some language for it. We are not bound to believe that this is actually how things work that God sits up in the sky and there's this figure called the Satan who comes along and God's like, have you checked out so-and-so? Have you seen them? Have you done this? But it is interesting to note that there's been a development that what was just a word describing somebody who's opposed to you has now been embodied. This idea of opposition has now been embodied in this figure called the Satan. And I would say this, I'm going to use a word, and I think it's fine in this room, but in other rooms it would not be fine. It's essentially a mythology grows about this figure called the Satan. Starts out as a word, becomes embodied, but then as time between the book of Job, say, and the first century where we meet Jesus in the New Testament, there's been all sorts of growth around this tradition. Um, lots of people would say it's because when the Jewish people went into exile in Babylon, they would have bumped up against other, another tradition called Zoroastrianism. And within that tradition, there are these sort of dueling gods. One is good, one is bad. And it, it seems like at some point, maybe as a result of that experience, the faith changed a little bit and the Satan stops working for God and becomes the opposition to God. Satan is not just an adversary of humans now. The Satan is an adversary of God, God's self. Are you with me? That's what's growing and happening in this tradition. And so just an overview of the New Testament, then we're going to look at a couple things. One, uh, the word Satan is used 36 times in the New Testament. Twice, it is used without the article, which means it's not talking about a, a personified being, it's talking about an adversary, right? And it's used twice in reference to a guy named Peter. Uh, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be executed and Simon Peter takes him aside and scolds him. Does anybody remember that story? Where he comes over and he scolds him and he's like, you, you shouldn't be talking like that. It's not going to happen to you. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And every time I heard that as a kid, I was like, oh, he just called him Satan. <laughs> no. He says, he's essentially saying, get out of my way. You're, you're an adversary and an obstacle to the mission and the work that I'm, I'm seeking to engage. And then another time it's used for Judas, but again, not as a being called Satan, but as sort of this experience of being an adversary. And the rest of the time, he's called the devil more than 30 times. This figure is called the devil more than 30 times. And so we come to the New Testament, and there's this event that happens in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 where Jesus is baptized. And after Jesus is baptized, he has this experience, this sort of identity-shaping experience where he hears the voice of God say, you are my son, uh, the beloved. In, in you, I find great joy. And then after that moment, that identity-shaping moment, we're told that Jesus goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days and nights, and he's tended by angels. Matthew comes along, aware of Mark, and aware of other stuff, and Matthew gives us a larger temptation story. It's actually one of 
the most, the stories that grip my imagination the most in the New Testament, right? Jesus is baptized. He's, he's given his identity. You are the beloved son. And he goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted and the tempter shows up and the temptation begins after Jesus is sufficiently hungry. And the tempter says, well, if you are God's son, turn the stones to bread. You shouldn't be hungry. You're God's son. Why would God's son be hungry when all you have to do is go and you've got stones turned into bread? Notice the way the tempter begins the temptation. If you are. Has that ever happened to you? Have those words ever popped into your brain? If you are, if, if you are God's child, if you are worthy, if you really matter, if you, if you, if you, if you, that, that sort of on a loop, Jesus has just come out of this big identity shaping moment and he's now, there's this question, is it, is it real? Is that really who you are? Is that really what God has said about you? Is that really what your work is in the world? Who are you anyway? Anybody here ever have imposter syndrome? I call it being an adult. (laughs) Because when are you actually an adult? Never. There are people faking it, right? But there's this sense of, I think we're all, (laughs) we all have this imposter. And, And how many of you have ever been doing something you're passionate about, you love, you feel like this is the thing I'm here to do in this world. And then there's this question, but who are you? Who are you to do the thing? Who are you to say the thing? Why would anybody listen to you? Why would anybody want your opinion? Why would anybody want your advice? I mean, if they knew you and then knew how you really didn't have it all together, like, why would they even listen? See, I'm just giving you the tape in my head. Who are you? And Jesus resists this temptation. He says, we live not by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Then there's another temptation where he says, okay, the tempter says to Jesus, look, if you're really the son of God, He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, okay, if you really are the son of God, jump off. And there's a Bible verse that says, if you do that, then angels will catch you and you won't get hurt. And immediately Jesus responds again with scripture. You shouldn't put God to the test. And then there's this last one where the tempter says to him, look, I I have access to all the kingdoms of the world. I can give you power and wealth beyond your wildest imagination. You are, you are seeking to bring the kingdom of God into the world. And that process is going to be difficult and painful and cross-shaped. What if we just go around all of that? And if you just bend the knee to me, I'll give it all to you right now. You actually don't have to lose anything. You don't have to carry a cross. It doesn't have to be difficult. There's a way this works and I'll help you get it. And of course, Jesus resists the temptation. Now, what I've come to understand is these aren't three random disconnected temptations, right? It's not like, it's not like he's like, hey, hey, Jesus, eat those Oreos, right? Which is what happens when we have Oreos at home for my, for my kids, and I walk by the pantry and I can hear it talking to me. Like, you just have one, nobody will know. And then one Oreo leads to a sleeve, I think is, is the trajectory of that. That's not what's happening here. This isn't just like, like, yeah, okay, I, I know you're trying to get off caffeine, but nobody will know if you have one cup of coffee. That's not the thing here. These temptations are tailored to get to the core of who Jesus is. Are you the Messiah? 
Are you the one who has come to embody an alternative vision for the world? Are you the one through whom this kingdom of God, this this reign of justice and peace and compassion and equity, are you the one through whom this will enter the world? Well, if you are, then you need to prove it. If you are, do this, do that. And then this last one, you can avoid all the difficulty. I think actually it's getting to what kind of Messiah Jesus will be. Will he walk the path of the cross, which is difficult and painful, or will he follow the path of every empire that has ever existed? Particularly in the first century world of Jesus, the question is, how do we get rid of Rome? Do we kill our way to victory against Rome, or do we try something else? And this is the question the tempter is asking Jesus. Do you want the kingdoms of the world? There's a surefire way to get them. Your army is bigger and better armed, and you go and you attack and you kill them. Now, I think Matthew's audience reading this probably 10 years after, they tried that way and they resisted Rome and everything got burned down. There's a hint in this story of Matthew going, this way never works. But I think it's fascinating what happens to the Satan in this temptation narrative because what happens is, I think it's a personification. Right? I'm just gonna, this is gonna shock all of you. I don't believe the devil is real. I don't. I don't think there's a being somewhere in hell licking his chops for us to get down there because I don't believe in hell. So that would be really hard for a being to be there waiting on us when it's not real. But look, I do think it's important. I do think this figure of the Satan is important because I think it is a personification of, of sort of the voice that lives in our head. Sometimes it's internal, maybe it's external, but there's this voice that is continually acting as an adversary to us. And it's continually causing us to doubt ourselves. It's continually causing us to question who we are. It's continually causing us to question whether or not we're worthy enough, whether our feelings are valid, whether our place at the table is really ours, whether we're lovable, whether our life at the end is even going to matter. There's this voice how many of you have it? It just plays on loop, and sometimes you can turn the volume down, but there are other moments, maybe moments in stress and anxiety, maybe moments of difficulty and pain and grief. There are moments, maybe it's just you've been having a great day, and you're just driving in your car, and you're like, it's such a lovely day, and then the voice comes on. Who are you? You really think they like you? You think they care about you? You think you matter? You think you have some part to play in the world? Who are you? And it's fascinating to me that I don't know what happened historically, but I have to imagine that, that Jesus, as he was going about the work of this kingdom of God vision, I bet there were dark nights of the soul like Gethsemane where he just wrestled with, who am I? I'm just a, I'm just a guy from a backwater village in Nowheresville. I mean, that's what Nazareth was. There's this great line in the Gospel of John where somebody meets Jesus and he's introduced as Jesus of Nazareth. And the guy goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm from a small town and I, like, I feel that sometimes. Like, can anything good come out of Belfry? Only bats come out of the Belfry. <laughs> can anything good? And that imposter syndrome begins to take over. That voice begins to creep in that causes you to pull back, to shrink back, to avoid, to not step into this maybe vision you have for who you are and what role you can play in the world. Maybe you have this vision for launching something into the world that would transform the whole thing and make actual human lives better and would lead to human flourishing. And all you hear is, who are you to do that? 
Who are you? You're not that person. There are other people. That's not you. And I was thinking about the, these temptations and, and how it apparently weighed on the psyche of Jesus. Like, who am I really to do all this? Am I really? Was that baptism thing real or did I imagine it? Did, did God really call me beloved? Did, did God really send the dove down? Did God really? Or is that all? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm making too much out of this. Maybe I should just go back and get back to the carpenter shop. And, and then there's this other line as I was thinking about this. There's this text at the end of the book of Romans where Paul says something that on the face of it is pretty strange. It's pretty strange. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and it's going great and then they just say the weirdest thing toward the end of it? And you're left going, what in the world? I thought they were pretty cool, but they're a little odd. Right, Paul does this at the end of Romans. Listen to verse, chapter 16, last three verses. Siblings, I urge you to watch out for people who create divisions and problems against the teaching you learned. Keep away from them. People like that aren't serving the Lord. They are serving their own feelings. They deceive the hearts of innocent people with smooth talk and flattery. The news of your obedience has reached everybody, so I'm happy for you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Here's the weird part. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. <laughs> Deuces. Like, like XOXO, Paul. Isn't that a little weird? Like, look, there's some people who are trying to cause divisions. Watch out for them. I hear you all really uh, doing the thing. Proud of you. And listen, God's going to crush Satan under your feet, so I'll see you later. What a strange way to wrap up this letter. But to give you a little context about this letter, Paul had never been to the, visit the church in Rome. So this is actually a letter he's writing to try to say, look, I'm legit and I'm going to come visit you and then I want you to help me go to Spain because Spain is my goal. And so I'm going to come to Rome. Hopefully you all will take care of me there and then you can send me off as I take this kingdom vision to Spain. One of the conflicts that is happening in Romans is that at some point in the 40s, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jewish people from Rome. He'd kicked them out. And so when all the Jewish people left, all that were left in these Jesus communities were Gentile Christians, right? They were people who, they weren't Jewish, they'd, been, they'd brought into this, they were Gentiles. And then eventually that order was rescinded and then everybody who wanted to came back. And suddenly this community that had become very dominantly Gentile was now... Jewish, Jewish and Gentile again, and they were trying to sort out, what do you do at the potluck? How do we, what do you do so that in our engagement, they're not having issues with, with impurity, but so that they're comfortable. So, and there's this conflict in the church that's threatening to rip the whole thing apart but between how do these two different groups of people who are both uh, captured by this vision of Jesus for the world, how do we get them to live in community together? And that's what Paul's doing in Romans. So when people try to make like theologies out of what Paul's doing in Romans and saying this is his systematic theology, friends, this Romans and every other letter he wrote is Paul literally building the plane while he's flying it. He's at 35,000 feet going, give me some duct tape. We've got a hole over here. And if you read Paul and you think, well, he says something different over here than he says over here. Mm -hmm. He's growing and changing and evolving. just like we all should and do. And so Paul is essentially trying to figure out how do I hold this community of people together because this vision only works if we can have Jews and Gentiles at the same table, 
if we can have men and women at the same table in that culture, if we could have slave and free, rich and poor, if we could have all of the, the sort of the, the diversity of humanity being at the same table, that's what this vision is. And if we start sort of blocking off and boundaring who can be a part of this, and if we start trying to exclude certain people, like now it's not the vision of Jesus, it's just another institution that needs to die. And that's what Paul's getting at in this letter. And at the end, he says, listen, I want you to know God is going to crush Satan under your feet. God's going to crush the adversary, the, op- the opposer, under your feet. Of course, in Genesis, we're never told that the snake is the Satan, right? But that there's sort of this sort of happens, and there's this line in Genesis about how the, the descendants of Eve are going to crush the serpent with their heel, and I think Paul's making an allusion to that here. But why bring this up? And why is God going to crush the Satan under our feet? What if Paul's saying, listen, stay together and stop believing the lies. Stop believing the lies about yourself. Stop believing the lies about your neighbor. Stop listening to the voice that tells you you're not enough. Stop listening to the voice that tells you that you are not gifted, you are not talented, you are not smart enough, you are not wise enough, you are not funny enough, you're not whatever looking enough, you're not wealthy enough. Stop listening to that voice. That voice is taking, that voice is why you all are doing this. Because everybody's trying to prove. Anybody listen to that voice and just started having to prove everything to every, and you really like realize that when you're trying to prove to all these people how great you are, you're actually not trying to prove to them how great you are. You're actually trying to prove to you how great you are. And that 90% of the time, maybe a hundred, when I'm worried and feeling incompetent and I want to show off so that everybody realizes I'm competent, I'm not doing that for them. I'm actually doing that for me. I'm doing that for that tape that keeps playing in my head that says you're just not enough. You've never been enough. What if Paul's saying the goal as you come together in community and as you sit around a table and as you break bread and as you drink wine and as you care for one another and as you watch one another, you watch their kids grow up and you care for ailing grandparents, as you do this whole thing of life together, what you'll discover is that when you are doing life in this, this community together, when you're experiencing the ups and downs of life, you'll begin to trust one another and you'll begin to see one another. And then when that tape starts playing for you, somebody's going to come along and go, that is total BS. That is not who you are enough. You belong. You are a child of God. You have nothing to prove. Your only task is simply to be and to show up in the world with the full you-ness that you bring to the world and offer and unleash that gift in any possible way you can to transform yourself and the people around you. So look, there are going to be these tapes that are playing in your head, Paul says. But the good news is there's somebody sitting across the table who's going to remind you, yeah, you actually are enough and you actually are worthy. You actually are beautiful. You actually are beloved. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. You're not a dirty, rotten sinner. You're a human being in process. And you are enough. And beyond that, you are good. 
And Paul says, when you do that, it changes the whole dynamic. So here's, I would like to offer an exercise. This is not um, in any way, shape, or form compulsory. You don't have to do this. If nobody does it, my feelings won't be hurt. We have some folks in the room with some Sharpies, um, and they're just going to drop them. Yeah, now, this is, this is the cue. <laughs> We're doing it. Um, so we're going to pass out Sharpies. We don't have enough to give everybody their own Sharpie. We're going to drop some in places and rows at tables. And, and here's what I want you to do. Let's, as they're passing these out, will you, will you just, just for a minute, will you, will you think about the voice in your head? At least for me, the voice in my head often doesn't feel like it's in my head. It feels like it's coming from somewhere else. Is that true for anybody else? Like you know that this is you, but also it's sort of taken on its own life form. Um, and so that it's speaking over you and not just through you. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about this line. I want you to think about that voice, and I want you to think about what it tells you. I want you to think about what you haven't done because you believe that voice. What steps you haven't taken, the love you haven't been able to share, the vision you haven't been able to lean into, the risks you haven't been able to take, the sleep you haven't been able to get. And then I want us to think about this line where Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, the adversary, the voice that's the inner monologue, the, the inner critic. God will crush Satan underneath your feet. And sometimes it's, it's good to have a thing in your brain, but sometimes it's good to actually do a thing. So here's what I want to invite you to do. If there's a word, when you think of the voice, the voice of the Satan, the accuser that, that lives rent-free in your body, if you can think of a word, if you can boil that down to a word, and you want to take a Sharpie and write it on the bottom of your shoe, as a way of sort of having a, a tactile, actual experience, not just in your head, but in your hands, on your shoes, and then walk out of here and walk the rest of your day thinking about that. That when we do this together, that when we see and are seen, when we, are, when we love and are loved, when we belong and, and, and celebrate belonging, that that is the God of peace, crushing the voice of the accuser underneath our feet.